Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Simon Burton from Numero. And I'm Matthew Liebman from Movio. Hey Simon, the floodgates have broken. Our restrictions have been heavily reduced here in New Zealand and I actually went to the cinema for the first time in August. I took the family to see Eternals. I've now got my June tickets for this weekend and Spidey tickets for the opening weekend as well. So it's starting to feel like life is normal here. Good to hear, mate. Clearly making up for lost time there. Uh, you're not alone getting those Spidey tickets. Um, seems like everyone on the planet Went out and got Spidey tickets last week, um, bringing down a, a number of websites, I, I hear. Yeah, yeah, I hear Fandango and Adam went down. Um, I guess they need a little bit more Spidey web than the, the grunt they've got behind their own website. <laughs> Very good. What have we got in today's show, Matt? Yeah, we're going to spend a bit of time on Spidey, um, and we'll also have part two of my interview with loyalty and engagement guru Adam Posner, the CEO of The Point of Loyalty, which we started a couple of weeks ago. But as always, why don't you kick us off with the box office highlights? Will do. A uh, bit of a quiet weekend at the, at the box office, not just in the North American market, but internationally as well, uh, with no real major new releases hitting our screens. Disney's Encanto continued its reign at number one, uh, taking 12.7 million US dollars in the domestic market, uh, an additional 20.7 million from international markets, bringing its worldwide cum to date of 116 million dollars. Uh, the second ranked film in the domestic market, Ghostbusters Afterlife, added another $10.3 million. It's now surpassed the $100 million mark in North America. Uh, House of Gucci at number three with nearly $7 million. Um, and interestingly, each of the top five films in the North American market had a week weekend on weekend drop of over 50% this past weekend. And it looks like some of those titles, of course, haven't opened up everywhere internationally. Gucci's got some markets to go. Ghostbusters opens, for example, in this part of the world around New Year's Day. So there might be some international life in them yet. Absolutely. Why don't we uh, we move over to the, the Spider-Man No Way Home pre-sales results, uh, as we touched on. Brought down a, a few websites when those those tickets went on sale uh, last week. I think if we just take a look at uh, a few markets, the US, the UK and Australia, for example. Um, if we're looking at North America, 11 days out from release today. And the pre-sales are 20 times the size of Venom, Let There Be Carnage. We know Venom went on to do $90 million opening weekend. So we were trying to find something a little bit more comparable than, uh, than Venom Let There Be Carnage. And there was only one, and that was Avengers Endgame, the largest opening in theatrical history. So at the moment, their pre-sales, the Spider-Man No Way Home pre-sales are a tick over 80% of Avengers Endgame at the same point, 11 days out from release. Uh, and just to, to remind the listeners, Avengers Endgame grossed $357 million in its domestic opening weekend. Um, so look, geez, if it goes on to do 80% of that number, that'll be a, a huge result. I've seen some trades saying it'll do about 150 million opening weekend. I think these pre-sales are suggesting it's going to do a fair bit more than that. And if we broaden that, that scope out to look at Avengers Endgame, uh, it went on to do 860 million domestic cum and nearly $2.8 billion worldwide. So Spidey the saviour, if it can, can bring those sorts of grosses to, to, to cinema owners all around the world at the end of December and into January, 
Um, that would be some wonderful news. Yeah, I think this will be a real indication of how the pandemic might have shaped pre-sales behaviour. You know, is it front-loading? Is it reflective of endgame? A couple of weeks from now, I think we'll have a pretty solid understanding of what a genuine blockbuster's life cycle looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we, if we look at the UK pre-sales and we compare it to, to No Time to Die, uh, that's a recently released film, unlike the 2019 release of Avengers Endgame. Um, and we now, now know that No Time to Die, the third largest film of all time in the UK, and the Spider-Man No Way Home pre-sales currently there are three times the size of that of No Time to Die, nine days out from release with the same sample of theatres. So, again, the, the numbers for this film are, are off, the, off the charts at the moment. Yeah, and when you look at the patriotism for Bond, you know, I would have put my money on him being ahead of Spidey. So that three times multiple is insane. I hear Odeon, one of the largest chains over there, sold 200,000 tickets alone in their first week. So some tremendous behaviour in that part of the world. Yeah, it's exciting. We'll see how it, how it plays out in the, in the next, next few days before it releases uh, at the end of next week. And I guess the thing for the UK, just, just doubling down on that Spidey result, I see the UK Cinema Association reported that October was the strongest box office in the UK in a decade. So they've come out of the doldrums really hard. And I guess the pandemic hasn't been completely shut down there. They're just learning to live with it. And it's reflecting in box office amongst other things. Why don't we take a look at the audience? And, and really, so far, it's uh, a Marvel greatest hits. You've got Endgame, Eternals, Spider-Man Far From Home, Infinity War, Shang-Chi, Captain Marvel, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and the one outlier being Star Wars Episode Nine. When I've looked at the benchmark here, what I decided to do was compare No Way Home to the other two Tom Holland installments of the Spider-Man franchise. And in line with the sales data to date, the pre-sale audience is so far dominated by infrequent cinema goers. And those are people who attend fewer than four times a year on average. And that means this film is bringing a lot more people back to the cinema. And that's reflective in those website crashes and those record pre-sales tickets that you were talking about. You know, perhaps aligned with this being an event activity, we're seeing more people going in groups of three or more. And we've seen 47% falling into that three ticket or more shopping basket compared to 42% for the other two installments. When we look demographically, the gender split for No Way Home is the same as the prior two installments from Tom Holland, 68% male for all three titles. And that compares to 54% for all pre-sale audiences across every movie. Now, in keeping with those larger group sizes, which often reflects family visit, the age does skew younger at 36% of the pre-sale audience being under the age of 17, compared to 32% for the prior two installments. And then in the US, where it's the one market that we look at ethnicity, we are seeing No Way Home's audience being more diverse than the prior two, and at the moment, 49% of the audience being non-Caucasian for No Way Home, versus 53% for the prior two. So as always, Simon, we'll see how that audience evolves as we get closer to release, and no doubt post-release it will shift, but that's what it's looking like today. Wonderful insights there, Matt. Thank you. Hey, look, now it's time for the interview. And for those who are regular listeners, you'll know that I had an interview with Adam Posner, the CEO of The Point of Loyalty, that was too long for one episode. And mainly that was because I was just geeking out at the chance to speak to somebody who lives and breathes loyalty to the extent that he does. So if you're a listener who's not listened to the first part, I urge you to go back and listen to it on the November 17 episode. But here's my part two interview with Adam. And we pick up with me asking him, 
who or what in the loyalty space has caught his attention at the moment? So we've talked a little about some of the companies that um, have stood out to you. You've mentioned Flybys, you mentioned Starbucks, but I'd be really interested to see when you look around the world, what companies and what programs are impressing you most at the moment and why? Because one of the things we try and encourage on the podcast is for people to look beyond our cinema industry into the broader world for inspiration. Uh, so what's inspiring you? I think there's, is a, there's a new flavor of, of what I call loyalty programs that are less transactional in terms of their makeup of rewards and benefits. Now, I might digress a little bit and just share with your audience what I would call the six currencies that customers care about in, a, in developing a rewards or benefits program or loyalty program. And the six currencies are at the base level, every program has sort of a transaction offering money. So show me the money. The next level is memory, which is experiences. So what can you put into your program that's more than money and it's those moments of magic and surprise and delights and anything that's more experiential. Clearly your category is very experiential. The next layer is time or utility. So what can you do within the program that saves me time, makes my life a little bit easier or, or anything that just makes it, the, the experience that much more uh, simpler. Then the next layer is all about me, which is using the data. So that's personalization. That's, that's two things actually. It's me, is my ego and exclusivity. And you know, some the gold class people have done a great job, you know, with exclusivity and ego and, and you know, and buying something more expensive, but getting that whole sense of I'm feeling very special. And then another layer is what are called my my choice, which is all about give me some options. Don't just tell me what I'm gonna get and that's all I can get. As some of us say to our children, you get what you get and you don't get upset. But now in programs you need to give people a bit more choice. And finally, it's the us, which I'll talk to you, which is the community-based layer which is bringing, you know, whether it's a cause-related a cause related reward or in other words, allowing people to give the, the points of their rewards to a cause or, or a charity, so donating to a wider uh, purpose. Um, but then the other element is what I call community. So depending on the brand and the passion point for the brand, and I think movies are a big passion point. I think, I think your category, you know, it's all about the experience and the memory and people talk about it. It's very, very much about that. And so where's that community of very half passionate movie, movie buffs and people in the program that I can be part of, that a forum. Um, and I've seen that in other categories of loyalty programs. So in Australia, um, there's a brand called Barbecues Galore, which just launched uh, a loyalty program, but very, very low on transactional, but heavy on people who love barbecuing and community and, and, and videos on how to do the perfect steak and all of that sort of stuff. So to answer your question in the long way around is, is programs that are building more community connection, I think are, are, are coming to the fore. And you can still see them in retail, like Adore Society here in Australia, a very, very strong and passionate group of people that love makeup and all of those sorts of things. So around the world, I think, you know, where you've got brands that have a little bit more passion, you can create a community in it. I love that concept of the six currencies. Let me ask you as a follow-up, is that hierarchical like Maslow? Can I go or do, can I jump somewhere higher level and give people choice but not be nailing the bottom levels? How do you think about that, that six currency interaction? I think your analogy to Maslow is perfect, but it's not exactly that. Yes, it looks like that. And the way I've explained it as a, as a pyramid, it's not. It's really about what I call a blend of benefits. So you could actually, it comes back to the brand and the strategy. So you've really got to take a step back because not every program's 
uh, blend of benefits or the six currencies, they d some of them don't choose to do one or the other. Um, they might just own one. So, for example, the currency of community or uh, or core. So there's a supermarket chain here called Richie's, the community where the community benefits, where every single part of that transaction, the program, is a percentage back to the community. That's their proposition, and that's only where they focus. So, uh, uh, that, sorry, they, they might have others, but they don't focus as much on that one. So they own that space. So hierarchically, yes, because of the way I went from money, memory, time, me, us, and uh, and my choice. Oh, sorry, I meant my and us. It sounds hierarchical, but it does depend on the strategy. Hey, look, so the world's changing a lot in terms of privacy and legislation around ad laws. We're seeing it in Europe with GDPR, CCPA, the Californian one in the States, Apple with their male privacy protection. What sort of risks do you think these might pose to loyalty programs, at least how they've operated traditionally? And do you see silver linings associated with this for certain ways you can operate a program in this new tighter environment? Um, I think this new tighter environment is, is gold linings for loyalty programs because a loyalty program is a value exchange. And as long as you are showing that your member is a, is a trust uh, element of you give me your data and in exchange, we'll give you benefits and rewards. So it's very transparent and there's a, there's a value exchange. So you all the data that you're getting is now within a value exchange and obviously from there on and how you use it, sensitivity um, and personalization, you, you must put value back because uh, it's a valuable asset, you know. So it's a valuable asset for the brand and people also are starting to protect their data. So it's valuable to them, their personal data. So I, I think this whole privacy talk is, is absolutely wonderful for programs. Um, and I'm saying that as a genuinely unbiased person who, who absolutely lives and breathes them because it's a known set of data, it's a value exchange, and if you're brilliant at the basics with privacy and trust and transparency and how you'll use the data and how you'll protect it, security and all of those aspects, then um, you know all the other noise around cookies and everything else I think can only be good for brands that have a value exchange with, with, the, with their data. That's great to hear. And I guess technology is um, creating other opportunities as well. So do you see a point probably driven by technology in the future where a formal loyalty program becomes less relevant because there are other ways for companies to collect customer data without needing that proactive identification. And is that the future or does that come with the opposite of silver lining, some downsides to it? I think it comes back to the brand and where it operates in terms of the data that it wants. So if you want personally identifiable data, PID, you know, so my, you want to know who I am, you know what are everything's related back to who I am and what I buy, and you want me to exchange that. Well, you certainly need to give me something for that. But obviously, there's certain brands that don't have loyalty programs. Just think of e-commerce these days. You don't have to be part of a program to continuously go log into your account and keep buying. Well, you're going to get all my data anyway. But how? What permission have, have I given you to use that? So, have I given you permission to communicate with me um, and all of those things? So. Um, a program's not the answer to everybody's, um, you know, data problem. It's not, absolutely. Uh, and there's certain brands that don't believe in them. But it does depend on the data you want and what you're going to do with it. And it feels to me to um, allude to your business, the point of loyalty should be to engage with people to make them come more often and, and influence that behavior you were talking about, as, also, as well as the belief. Um, 
and while you might be somebody who wants to analyze data, if it's not actionable, I kind of question its purpose. It seems to be in an echo chamber. I love that analogy, echo chamber, and it's sort of bouncing around. That's a, that's a nice metaphor. I, I think it's back to that data, everyone wants it, but, but to your question, why? So it, with my clients, when they say, oh, we need more data, I first stop and say, well, first of all, why? And what will you do with it? And do you have the technology and the systems and the process? And we can go so, so much more deeper. But the data, the data piece is very much, we can get so much of it, but are you using it sensitively, wisely, personally, and so on, so that adds value to your business and to your member's life? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Have you ever seen a loyalty program compensate for poor underlying experience, you know, this process and service, you know, maybe because the loyalty balance is so big, there are switching costs or for some other reason where you've heard people say, oh, look, I don't like product X or, or retail or Y, but I feel, I feel bound to them. Is there any long-term success there or is it false? No, I think you've also got another very important point to think about in that I mean, there are, again, certain categories where people are stuck mm. to the points that they're earning. And we might talk most probably freaking flyers, essentially, uh, where they're earning so many points or they've got so many. But do they really absolutely feel they're getting the service and the experience as well as, you know, are they, you know, are they stuck to the points and, oh, well, they can't get the flight they want. So they'll compromise and get another flight. So they're not truly getting what they want, but they're getting the points. So points can become extremely, extremely powerful to hold on to a certain kind of customer without them really feeling the love, as I call mm. it. So they might not love mm. and or recommend, but they're stuck in the in the points process and, and what they're getting from it. So uh, in terms of, so there's certain, that sort of thing, but I think people, they, they you know, obviously then where the program's not giving them as much benefit then and the brand then makes a mistake or is not you know, truly living towards an experience, a program does not matter. I always say, I always say, you can't put a bandaid over, uh, you know, a poor, a poor basic experience. You just with a program. A program is there to augment, to add value, to be on top of being what I call being brilliant at the basics. That that rings true to me as well. Hey, look, I know I've taken a lot of your time up, Adam, but I can't let you go without asking you what the last memorable cinema experience you had and and what made it so memorable. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm clearly, obviously, because of our times, but more, more and so, I mean, absolutely love the movies, as many others do. Got young kids, so always talking about the movies. But I, there's, there's no way better than these days to treat yourself to a gold class or something really special where you're, you can sit back and have that, you know, that in-house experience where you almost feel like you're at your own home movie cinema at home uh, with, you know, 12 other people and the chairs and the and, and the eats and what you eat and what you drink and. Uh, you know, for me, when I can treat myself and my, my wife to that experience, it's always remembered. It's even the way, you know, we get greeted and how special they make you feel, which is part of what we've been talking about all this time. So, um, yeah, my last one wasn't too long ago when we could go and have a gold class experience or, or that. But then you would know the categories. Of, it's those which create more of that sense around, you know, the 3D and the old, and my kids used to go crazy for the 3D and the other experience. I mean, they wouldn't stop talking about it. So, in your category, it's all about the experience and how do they, um, you know, add a little bit extra to that every single time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Hey, Adam, thank you so much for your time. I would urge everyone to check out your website, uh, The Point of Loyalty, to read your blogs as I do, to follow you on social uh, and LinkedIn. 
And uh, I'd love to make this at least an annual catch up because um, I've learned heaps and this space is so dynamic that to have an expert like you share your insights would be would be hugely valuable and appreciated. Uh, cheers, Matthew. I love chatting to you. Uh, your questions were nice and deep and, and, and put, made me think, which is great. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Matt. Moving on to next week, we've got the major wide release uh, of West Side Story, Steven Spielberg directing, getting extremely positive buzz. We'll have to see how it performs against the most two recent musicals, In the Heights and Dear Evan Hansen. Taking a look at the pre-sales, uh, we can see that it's sitting right in between those two, two titles at the moment. Uh, we've also got the limited release of Amazon Studios uh, being The Ricardos with Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem. Um, that's getting a limited theatrical release before appearing on Amazon's streaming platform on December 21st. Yeah, definitely some retro content next week, but if um, the reviews are anything to go by, West Side Story's got a good future. I guess we'll see if it manages to get from between those previous two musicals you just mentioned there. Uh, the other thing we've got next week, Simon, is a bittersweet interview with our good mate, William Palmer. Uh, for those who aren't aware, Will's the co-founder and CEO of Movio. And he's finishing up with the company after 11 years on the 17th of December. So this will be a chance for you and I to discuss his highlights, any lowlights, his predictions for the future and advice to industry stakeholders. So definitely want to tune in for when we go behind the screens next week. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced by Grace Furness and edited by Patrick Hanna. Additional support from Ryan Preventure, Georgia Culverwell and Christine Rizzolo.